The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. All right, welcome Disability Law Show. So good to have you along for the next hour. We're ready to uh, to tuck in, so uh, so stick around and uh, learn a little, right? Maybe spread that information, maybe reach tomorrow after the show if you would like. Schools here along with Tamara Gopian, partners, Sam Firu, Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. We talk disability law. We get your opinion. We get your emails. Always feel free to contribute to the show Anytime you could do so, uh, uh, help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address to use, and you want to reach Tamar and her uh, her team. After the show or any other time, no problem, toll-free, 1-855-821-5900. Do not feel scared to call and just have a chat, get some information. It won't cost you anything, but you'll be enlightened, so uh, so do that. So keep that number around, right, one 855 821 5,900, lots of emails and questions coming in already tomorrow, but we always start off with the uh, the case of the day and uh, something that's happening on your side. What do you got going on, pal? Well, I was actually thinking a lot about what our listeners might be doing as as the show is on, John, perhaps, you know, at a cottage, perhaps they're tuning in, uh, perhaps they're on the road, something like that. And I thought to myself, what would they want to really hear me talk about on the show? And I got to tell you, I think, you know, we should start off our show talking about the basics. Let's get back to basics about what disability law is about. Why is it that we run these shows every week? Mm -hmm. And it's because we want to give information to individuals out there who are dealing with insurance companies or perhaps to their treatment providers, their family members. You know, you may know someone who's off work as a result of health issues and they're complaining or having challenges dealing with the insurance company, their adjuster, perhaps their rehabilitation person, and they don't know what to do. And guess what? There is a ton of information out there, not only our show, but as John mentioned and will continue to mention throughout our show, we've got resources out there on the World Wide Web. And we do avail ourselves of these resources because they are very, very important and we update them. And there's one in particular that I wanted to touch on uh, at the top of our show. And it's a guide that we've created, John, for specifically for treatment providers and health providers. And why have we done this? Well, so going back to basics, the idea is that if you are totally disabled, and and that doesn't mean laid up in bed, John, that means if you've got a health issue that is preventing you from working, then you are entitled usually through your employer's group plan or perhaps through a private plan to apply and pursue disability benefits. And inevitably, if you've got the medical support for that disability and those disabilities or health issues prevent you from working, then you should be theoretically obtaining disability benefits from the insurance company. But the key there, John, is the medical reports, the medical information, what's contained in your application. And, you know, I've got a lot of time and value and respect for the health practitioners in our province who are helping these individuals through this time. And it can be a a quagmire, I would say, of information that difficulties in terms of how do I explain this information on behalf of a patient or a client. And this guide really tries to, in a very succinct way, break that down. So I don't want anyone to, to not know, where do I go for this information? What, if I'm talking to my doctor, for example, about 
you know, advancing or, or making an application for disability benefits. How do I do this? You know, wh- where do I go for this information? What, what should my doctor say? And so we've got a lot of detailed information on that. And I, and I think the key really in my mind is you really want your health practitioners to connect your health issues, the limitations with those health issues right. alongside your, your occupational duties. Like what is your day-to-day job and how is it that your health is preventing you from doing those basic day-to-day activities that you're required to do with your job? And when I say activities, it's a little bit of a misnomer too, uh, John, because we've got, of course, lots of clients and listeners who perhaps have a fairly sedentary type job. In other words, they're sitting most of the day, perhaps answering phones, doing largely computer work. Yep. That too, you could have health issues preventing you from doing a job like that as well. So. I think the key is really the details. Make sure that the information that you're supplying to the insurance company has those details, the day-to-day struggles, the treatment that you're getting for those issues. You know, what's the projection of where this might go? Is this two months? Is this seven months? Is this who knows? And that's okay, by the way, to say we don't know, it's indefinite. And, you know, with ongoing assessments, all of that is absolutely fair, but you want to explain all of that to the insurance company and you want it to come from your medical practitioners. Yeah. Now, you know, don't get me wrong. People will complete their own forms for disability. They will speak to their adjusters. They will supply this information. And I get this question a lot, John. Tamar, why are they not listening to me? <laughs> they, they, they are listening to you, client or uh, potential client. But at the end of the day, if it's validated by your own medical team, it's that much more persuasive. The insurance company cannot dismiss it in the variety of ways that they like to do when it's written in black and white on a document in a report with some context to it and put over to the insurance company for consideration. And so, like I said, from the top of the show, you know, going back to basics, what is the key for a disability claim? That is the key element. So if you're listening and you're curious, okay, what information can I get? Please go to ltdfaq.ca or is it.com john will tell us and of course that you will find the guide there along with a bunch of helpful memos and information that you can access to figure out look is this fitting in my situation am i dealing with a difficult adjuster am i trying to figure out you know how to get a report completed am, am i being asked to do an assessment or an ime you know we have definitely memos that cover all of those topics and to reach out, by the way, outside of that, you want to talk to Tamar anytime, here's how you do it, one 821 5900 You also have the option to ask more questions at mydisabilityquestions.com, which is a free and anonymous website. You can use that anytime you would like as well. But uh, as mentioned, Tamar, we got a lot of stuff to uh, to get through today. I think uh, Gersh Aaron's our first email. If you want to dig into this one, we'll uh, see how far Let's we get in this sucker. You bet. She says, uh, or Gersh Aaron says, my pre-disability income was $65,000 per year. I'm on LTD, and I was recently approved for CPPD and the disability tax credit. Uh, CPP says, I can't reasonably make over $16,000 dollars due to my severe and prolonged disability my ltd policy doesn't explicitly state what percentage of my pre-disability income i can earn when it switches to any occupation is there precedent uh that 60 percent could be used for any occupation and to further that um how do you best deal with the ltd providers when own occupation is coming up in one year but the claimant is already approved for cpp and disability tax credit 
lot to, a lot oh, of, to hash through lots, there, right? Yeah, lots of good yeah. questions in there and lots of things to touch on. And so, you know, love the acronyms, right? The, you know, mm-hmm. DTC, <laughs> CPPD, LTD, love it. So look, um, the CPP Disability Benefit is a government-sponsored plan that's available to anyone who has a severe and prolonged disability and has the medical support for such a disability. So severe, obviously impacting day-to-day functioning, impacting ability to work, prolonged. Typically that's, you know, anything more than six months to a year, I would think, but there's no hard and fast rule. And so what Gorsharan describes for us is a lot of technical issues that arise out of being approved for CPP disability benefits and what CPP might do that might differ from what your disability insurer might do in a situation like that. One other thing that Agrasharan mentions is the disability tax credit. Similar test, John, also if you have a severe and prolonged disability, also a government-sponsored type program. And what it does is that it reduces the taxability of any income that you receive, which by the by includes CPP disability. So if this profile sounds familiar, please do access CPP disability, do make the application for the disability tax credit, all very, very helpful government tools for individuals in situations like this who cannot work. But with that comes evaluations around thresholds for work. So what Gersharn has described is CPP disability will say, if you are gonna continue to receive your disability benefit from the government, that's fine. And you can earn up to a certain amount before you are disqualified or must be reevaluated for continued disability benefits. I believe that's around $6,000 a year. It changes. It ticks up every year, John, by a little bit. But at the end of the day, you should be aware that if you're receiving CPP disability benefits, you can earn income. You can have a little bit of, uh, you know, an hourly wage doing something, but there's a cap to that before you must obviously be reevaluated and assessed as to whether or not you continue to be entitled for CPP disability. That threshold, though, is very different when you're talking about the disability insurer. Because the disability insurer obviously is a private plan, you know, big corporations, they have these policies, these policies typically are with your employer, they, you know, come up with the terms and conditions, and the terms and conditions inevitably will consider if you're getting CPP disability the disability insurer will get a credit for anything you get for CPP disability. So we always use this example, very, very simple. And in fact, Gersharan is is in this zone, you know, roughly earning $65,000 a year. I expect the disability benefit being received is roughly about $3,600 a month. If, uh, you know, there's approval then beyond that for the CPP disability amount, let's say that's even, you know, $1,200 or so, or even $1,000 or so, give or take, then you're going to get that reduction in your LTD benefit of that same amount. So all of a sudden it becomes, you know, $2,400 or, you know, $2,600, whatever the case might be. Where that becomes relevant with alternative occupation is this. At the roughly two-year mark or just before, the insurance company will need to make an evaluation as to whether or not you remain totally disabled under the LTD plan. And that test changes, arguably becomes a little tougher to meet. And it says, is there anything you can do in the world? Anything for which you've got some basic education and employment background. And that would essentially allow you to earn roughly what you're getting as your LTD benefit. So in Gersharan's situation, that would be roughly $3,600 a month. 
in that analysis, the insurance company is not going to take into consideration the CPP disability amount. So, John, I want to talk a little bit more about this sure. and how this works. So let's pick this up after our break, and I can get in a little bit further into it because there was a couple of follow-up questions that came up from Gorsharan's email as well. And with that, we'll take that break. As uh, Tamar mentioned, uh, in the meantime, reaching out, keep the number one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca, and we'll continue short breaks. Stick around, just getting warmed up. More disability law shows on the way. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. All right, welcome back to Disability Law Show. Tamara Gopian is here answering all the questions, the emails, texts, etc. that come into Tamara on a uh, daily basis, hourly almost for that uh, for that matter. I want to get right back into it, but I'll give you some reach out information for Tamara and her team. Always willing to have a chat and educate you, right? Hey, uh, 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions or memos on LTD, ltdfaq.ca is a good resource as well. We've uh, we often mentioned. Okay, tomorrow back to your uh, back to your email. Uh, pick it up, pal. Where are we uh, where are we taking it? Uh, absolutely. So Gersharan described to us a situation. A lot of math, my least favorite subject, but a you know <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> about you know if I'm earning sixty five thousand dollars a year, if I'm getting CPP disability benefits, I'm getting the tax disability tax credit. You know, what's the percentage around the threshold for any occupation? You know, how is that different with CPP disability versus long-term disability? And it is different because they are two totally different entities that are actually paying these benefits, even though they work together. So the conclusion with the working together part is, John, um, you know, drum roll, please. One gets credit for the other. LTD gets credit for CPP disability. Okay, so your LTD benefit will be reduced going forward once you're approved for CPP disability. But what happens with your long-term disability as you're sort of getting close to that two-year mark? And, you know, what you need to be aware of, if you're Gershara and if you're any claimant, if you're listening out there, you've got to be aware of the fact that the insurance company is going to be doing, the adjuster in particular that you've got, a lot more scrutiny a lot greater adjudication will be happening around this time frame because they are looking for an opportunity to close out your claim, okay? They want to end that disability claim because they know what I know, which is if you get past that two-year mark, it can be that much more challenging for the insurance company to justify to a judge or a lawyer or someone like me that it was actually legitimate, that they did that analysis, they accepted that you were totally disabled from any occupation, that you're unlikely to work for the foreseeable future and then wait we changed our mind six you know six months down the road or a year down the road so in that analysis the insurance company will look at what can you do as an alternative occupation so it's the ship sailed about you going back to your own job now it's a question of you know where else can you work and at an earnings level level that's lower than what you were making when you went off initially for disability and so what Gersharn specifically asked was, is there a percentage that's going to be used as the benchmark of my alternative occupation, the alternative any occupation analysis? And that is a really, really good question. Most disability policies actually don't define that, John. It doesn't say you've got to be able to earn, you know, 60%, 70%, whatever the case might be. But 
the law fills this in somewhat. And in Ontario, there is a bit of a range. It says it can be anywhere between 60% to 75% of what you were making before. So bringing this back to Gersharan's situation, if you're making $65,000 a year, now the insurance company is going to say to you, you can go out, even with your health issues, given what we know about your education, training, and experience, and earn roughly $39,000 a year, okay, give or take, or $42,000 a year, whatever the math is, given the range of that percentage. When your policy does not define what that alternative wage level is, most insurers will use give or take 65% of what you're earning before, or what your disability benefit is, which is usually about two-thirds, 66.67%. So really getting getting into the weeds here, but it is very, very important for people to understand if you're on claim, you're getting close to that two-year mark, maybe you're just past the one-year mark, and all of a sudden you're getting lots of calls from the adjuster, and there's requests for further medical information, there's talk about getting you into a work hardening program, you're thinking, what's going on? You know, I just got approved for CPP disability, why am I hearing different things and the change in tone perhaps with the adjuster? It is because they are getting ready for that analysis of the change of definition. So what do you do? Again, goes back to my opening salvo. The medical support that you have has to be really relevant, really timely, really detailed. And the focus is, can you work at all in any capacity? It's no longer an assessment or a discussion with your doctor about, can you go back to that same job? No, that's not what the insurance company is looking at now. Yes, it's important, of course, but it's now more so important of, what else can you do? And if that analysis is not solid by the insurance company, and nine times out of 10, it's not, John, I can tell you, and the insurance company goes off and declines your claim on improper information or improper assumptions, then my hope and expectation is that you're going to call us, you know, you're going to have us give us the opportunity to advocate on your behalf. But even before all of that, if you want to lay the groundwork properly, engage your own medical team to have that focus around, okay, now the insurance company is asking me to do all these other things. Is this correct? Is this medically sound? You know, doctor or physiotherapist or psychiatrist, do you support these other measures that are being taken? Get them involved. Help them help you to get the insurance company to understand that this is not a quick fix overnight solution. You go to eight treatment sessions and you're now ready and back to work, which I can tell you happens very, very routinely by these insurance adjusters when they're getting close to that uh, change of definition decision. And by the way, oh, thank you, uh, Gersharon, for that uh, that particular email. You want to send one along anytime. It might appear on a, a future show. How about that? Help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll move down to, uh, to Nev. Nev says, my brother has been battling a number of health issues for the past few years, including depression and alcoholism. When he applied for LTD benefits, the insurance company declined his claim because he submitted his application late and also said he was not getting appropriate treatment for his substance issues. His employer later acknowledged that the lateness of the application was not my brother's fault, but the insurance company still refused to approve his LTD claim. It's been almost two years, and my brother's still struggling, can't work. Do you think we could still win against the insurance company? So, Nev, thank you very much for this email. Really, really important stuff here. And the short answer is yes, I still think we can win a case like this. And so we're going to have a chat uh, about what we can do to help your brother. But let me get into the weeds, as I often do in situations like this, and and get out get out there the thing that's most important. 
in Ontario, you have two years from the date the insurance company first said no mm -hmm. to start a legal claim. Two years, that's it. And it's a little bit hard and fast, John. So there's no gray on that one. So you get a letter that says, no, we're declining your disability benefits. No, and expect that you've got a two-year clock that's just start, started to run. And if that run that clock runs out, you will be in a tough spot. It's very, very unlikely that you will be able to persuade a court in a situation like that, that you had a reason why you were delayed in pursuing a claim, okay? Having said that, it's a little bit different in a situation where your application for disability benefits was late. That's different than starting a legal claim for a denial of disability benefits. So let's talk about that. Most disability policies will have timeframes in which you need to advise the insurance company that you've got a claim. I would say it's typically 90 days within the start of the initial onset of your disability, sometimes as, as far out as six months or so. All I can tell you is that there is a time frame and you want to really, really be aware of it. And I find, and this, by the way, is something that employers should be telling their, their individuals uh, about, but I find that most don't know and people are not aware. And frankly, it's not really even top of mind because you're dealing with these health issues. You're trying to figure things out. You need to let your employer know that you can't get back to work. You know, they're saying, look, you, you need to make a short-term disability application. Maybe you do an EI sickness application. One way or another, LTD is not really on the radar. And so what I encourage people when I speak with them who are in that initial phase of disability is, please, please be mindful of the, when long-term disability benefits are to kick in. And in fact, that your application for that has to come in just before that time frame usually. And so if you are late with that application, which it sounds like Nev's brother was, then be aware that yes, the insurance company will look at it and make a decision on whether or not it's so late that they feel they don't have the ability to properly adjudicate or assess your disability claim. Here's the thing though, John, there's some cases around this and the courts have said, look, you know, it can't just be a handful of days. And it sometimes it's not even a handful of months. There are certain applications that have been submitted a number of months late and the courts have granted individuals like this, what we call relief from forfeiture. forfeiture yeah. Yep. And it's a relief under the law that says if there's a reasonable explanation for the delay, if there's something for why it took so long and that is accepted and it hasn't compromised the insurance company's true ability to evaluate your disability claim, then you can seek this relief. It's very technical. There's issues of prejudice and so on. And so I don't want our listeners to think, OK, yeah, I can submit my application two years late and I'll be OK. No, that's not necessarily the case, but be aware that there's a remedy. And this is why I'm saying in Nev's brother's situation, there is an answer here. Because what she tells us is that the employer acknowledged that the application was late as a result of the employer. And so that is actually a very good reason as to why an application might be late. I'm curious as to how late it was, frankly, John, and how that lines up with the case law. But I suspect it's probably a number of months. And perhaps the insurance company was aggressively trying to decline the claim because of the backdrop of the health issues, which is the substance issues and the depression. And we talk a lot about this on the show too. And so what we see often enough, 
and unfortunately enough, that insurers really resist a lot of claims that have a substance use or abuse component to it. They do this you know, unfairly because we know that substance issues are valid disabilities and they are just as valid as a broken arm or some other you know, physical health issue and typically are tied with mental health conditions. And so when you've got a doctor like Nev's brother, I assume, had to apply for disability benefits. So therefore, the support that he is totally disabled from working as a result of his depression and his alcoholism, then in my mind, that's fairly automatic. That meets the test of total disability. Right. But insurers will use other components of the policy to decline these types of claims. And one of those things is an appropriate treatment requirement. So the policies say, look, you're totally disabled from your own occupation, at least in the initial phase of the policy, then you are entitled to disability benefits. But there's a whole bunch of buts, but this, but that. And one of those big ones is if you're not getting appropriate treatment, quote unquote, for your disability. And so the denial that sounds like Nev's brother got was a bit of a dressed up one where they said, look, we think your application is late. We're not going to accept the reasonable reason that your employer has provided to us. And by the way, we think there's a substance issue here that you're not getting appropriate treatment for. Our knee-jerk reaction there is just to deny the claim and hope that you just go away and this isn't going to be something that's going to be pursued further. Wrong. You do want to pursue your rights in a situation like that. It's even more so important to do so in the context of a legal claim because the insurance company's lawyer is going to know all the cases that I know, John, about relief from forfeiture, about the fact that substance use and abuse claims are valid disability claims, and that a reliance by the insurance company on this type of an exclusion or you know elimination of a valid disability on the basis of substance use is not appropriate. And so I can best do that and my team can best do that in the context of a legal claim because we start the lawsuit and it takes it out of the adjuster's hands who's already said no. It's going to put it into a lawyer's hands who know us. We work with them all the time. And I can then put the pressure on the insurance company on issues like that by using the law as my favor, as my power, as my tool to be able to advance and advocate on behalf of someone like Nev's brother. It's interesting, too. I want to get into the uh, the topic of, you know, if you're unexpectedly cut off from your benefits. I know there's a lot of, of, of pre-warnings that are that are thrown at you in advance of that, but sometimes it happens. But before we do that, we got to slide into a, a quick break. If you want to have some, uh, some say in the show and have uh, some questions answered, you can email us, and uh, it might appear on a future show. How do you do it? Help at disabilityrights.ca, or if you prefer more of a uh, private conversation with Tamar and her team, one 821 5900 no charge for that pick up a phone say hi have a conversation and take it from there as we will in a few minutes here we'll take a short break and get right back to more of the disability law show stand by you're listening to a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser the opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 toronto all right, welcome back. Disability Law Show, Tamar Gopian once again handing and doing all the heavy lifting to reach out to Tamar when we're done. one 821 5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca. You often talk about the warnings, you know, that the insurance company is going to cut you off and you'll get something in the mail and you may not like it, but it could be happening. What happens, though, if someone's LTD benefits are cut off unexpectedly? Just boom, gone, vaporized. What's the, uh, what's the first thing they should do? 
Oh gosh, you know, yes, it can happen, John. And I think, you know, I do want people to call us right away, but I think the more important thing to do right away is to actually contact the insurance company. And and I'm not just saying the adjuster who's, you know, dealing with you or perhaps has never called you and now has sent you a letter or an email cutting off the claim. You know, these insurance companies have customer service lines. Call them. Call them too. Be be difficult. Keep calling and saying, look, what's happened? I haven't received my monthly benefit. Why? You can be respectful about it, of course, but you really do want to understand why those benefits ended because it could be that you were sent a letter that you never received. Perhaps the insurance adjuster said, oh, well, I tried calling you twice, didn't get a hold of you, so here we go, we're cutting you off, and never offered an explanation, perhaps. And you do really want to know what that explanation is. And ideally, John, you'd want to get that in writing. And here's why. Once it's communicated to you in writing, it triggers your right to assert a legal claim on that basis, whatever that reason is. And I find that there can be some sloppy adjudication on occasion where the adjusters are not doing what they're meant to do, or perhaps they're being rather hasty about cutting off a claim, um, or they will loosely rely on a conversation you had with them three weeks ago. Maybe they got a report or some kind of a medical review, haven't told you about it. There's a whole host of reasons that could exist as to why they've unexpectedly cut off your claim, but they've got to tell you what that is so that you can make choices around what is it that the insurance company is saying? Is this something that I can challenge? And so if the very next call is a call to our office, call with me and we're having a discussion, I'm going to say, okay, let's go back here. What happened before your disability benefits ended? What were you told? Did you receive any sort of communication? And if you have, let me see it. I want to see what they've said, because if they're unjustified in doing it, especially unexpectedly, then my spidey sense is telling me this is a good breeding ground to assert your claim in a legal claim. Let's not deal with this pesky adjuster who doesn't seem to be knowing what to do. Let's actually put the insurance company's feet to the fire, because this typically is not appropriate policies or conduct by the insurance company. And I can tell you, their lawyers know it, John. They know it. So... I think that if you're in a situation like this, you're not sure all of a sudden you didn't get your benefit. Look, maybe it's just as simple. They did just didn't release it or there was something wrong with your banking. Great. If that's the case, easy fix. They'll release the payment. You're good to go. But if it's something more complex, if it's really, in fact, the end of your disability claim, you want to know about it. You want to know why. And then you want to get some legal advice around that so that you can make some choices around what to do going forward. Does this mean I got to talk to my doctor for ongoing medical support? Does this mean I need to speak to someone about what my options are about an appeal or a legal claim, for example? You know, let's figure that out because I can tell you, you know, it can be really disarming if you're in a situation like this. I've had this happen to a couple of clients. You know, you're expecting that monthly benefit. Perhaps you need that monthly benefit to pay for treatment that you've got coming up. And then all of a sudden you don't get that payment. And then what? then you've got to cancel your treatment. Now you're, you're getting setbacks on your health. All of this, if it's tied to the insurer's poor conduct, can be put into a legal claim to justify not only getting your disability benefits that should have always been paid, but also can form the basis of a claim for damages. We talk about this occasionally on the show, perhaps not enough, but the insurance company does have duties and obligations to their, their claimants. 
They have an obligation to be transparent with you. They have an obligation to communicate with you regularly as to what's happening with your claim. They have the obligation to explain things. You know, there's a whole host of things that go with what's called their duty of good faith. And courts, I can tell you, when the insurance companies have not met their duty of good faith, will grant awards of damages. Sometimes tens of thousands of dollars, John, can be awarded against these insurance companies for not treating their claimants properly. And I got to think that cutting off someone's disability benefits unexpectedly without justification constitutes that kind of bad faith type conduct that will be open for a court to censure and to say to the insurance company, that is not the way that you need to practice and handle these claimants who are already compromised as a result of their health. Let's get to Harry's email before we take a short break. I'll read it and we'll, I guess, start to comment and come back to it uh, tomorrow. But Harry says, hey, tomorrow I'm 46 and have worked in physical jobs my whole life. I got a job right out of high school, never thought to go to college or anything. After I hurt my back a few years ago, I just could not keep working. Turns out I have herniated discs in my spine and early arthritis. All the doctors I've seen say that my pain will get worse with time, but they still want me to keep up with my treatments like injections and therapy. The insurance company paid LTD benefits and then cut me off at the two-year mark, saying that I could do a light-duty job sitting down most of the day. The thing is, I'm not qualified for any job like that, and even the insurance company said I need to upgrade with more education. Does it make sense that my LTD benefits were cut off? Harry, classic. Classic. It does not make sense that your LTD benefits were cut off, but I'm not surprised, unfortunately. I see this profile a lot. Uh, You've got an individual who's got limited education, I would say, relatively speaking, probably has been doing, I think he said to us, physical jobs his whole life. Uh, He's in his sort of mid 40s or so. And now it becomes a situation of, look, what else could he possibly do? And, you know, we talk about this a lot, but that analysis by the insurance company can be quite, you know, limited, I would say. So they'll get you to either fill out a form of what your education, training and experience is, or the adjuster might call you and ask you those questions. Then they submit that information, John, to a third party to do what's called a transferable skills analysis. So they'll take your background, uh, like your education and what you've worked at, and they'll do an analysis of your job. They'll put in what your limitations are or make assumptions around what your limitations are, whether they be physical, mental health, cognitive, all of that goes in. And then they will pump out alternative occupations that you could do. And it sounds like in Harry's situation, that's exactly what the insurance company has done. They said, okay, look, we accept that you've got current back limitations. They don't look about the future. They just say currently right now, okay, you've got back limitations. And if that can be accommodated, if you can do a job sitting down most of the time, then we think you're not entitled to further disability benefits. But why don't we pick up a couple more points on on Harry's email after our break, John? Absolutely. We still got some minutes to go, so we'll get back to that. In the meantime, reaching out one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred for you and help at disabilityrights.ca. We continue. This is the Disability Law Show. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. All right, welcome back. We are uh, set to go for the last few minutes of the show today. Reaching out uh, beyond this is going to be help at disabilityrights.ca. 
PA and 1-855-821-5900. Tamar, always there with her team to answer your questions and uh, solve any mysteries or uh, any confusion when it comes to dealing with your long-term disability insurer. But back to uh, Harry's email, hasn't done a lot of stuff. You know, he's, he'd worked his whole life, injuries, you know, being asked to re-educate and, and learn something new to do a sedentary sit-down job, right? Not a, not an uncommon story for you, Tamar. Pick it up where, uh, where you left off, pal. That's right, John. And what I wanted to comment on specifically was this idea that the insurance company has told him he needs further education to mm-hmm. actually land himself into this alternative occupation. And so it reminds me of a call I had actually yesterday where the individual told me, oh, well, the insurance company said to me that I must go back to my job. And if I don't, they're going to cut off my claim. And if I'm not successful in my job, they're going to help me find another job. Okay. I said, no, that doesn't make sense. They're not going to help you find another job. And Harry's situation is the same. They're not obligated to actually give you training and education. People think they do. They're like, oh, well, the insurance company has said to me that I need more education. So so they're going to pay for that, right? I'm like, no, they're not going to pay for that. They might give you a little window of time. So they might say, oh, we're going to give you a gratuitous two, three months payment you know, on a without prejudice basis, or we're not, you know, committing to the fact that you're disabled at all, but right. we're giving you this little extra cash because we know full well that you're not ready to actually jump into a sitting down type job and you're going to have to take a bunch of courses, maybe do a GED, like a whole host of things, um, which can be very difficult for an individual like Harry who's 46 and has never done an office type job whatsoever. So imagine, you know, I don't know exactly the kind of work that he's doing, but I just picture, you know, my uncle who does construction and my job where I'm sitting at an office and typing emails like it's it's totally different, John, just to use a very extreme example. But, you know, the point being that I don't want individuals to feel that they're lulled into something, even though the insurance company is saying something to them. If it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. Right. That's right. It doesn't make sense that, you know, doesn't pass the smell test. And this Mm -hmm. issue about retraining is one of them. So when they do these analyses around what else you can do, if they cannot identify jobs that you can do that, first of all, you are functionally able to do, so physically or mentally or emotionally able to do, the report will say that to the adjuster. It'll say, okay, without further improvement on their health, they can't even get to these two or three other jobs that we've identified. Similarly, if you don't have the right education, training, and experience, these kinds of analyses, the transferable skills analysis, the any occupation analysis, it too will say, okay, without six months of training or without a, you know, a GD degree, without perhaps some focused, I don't know, resume training and a whole host sure. of other things, this individual will not even get, be able to apply or have the minimum requirements for these other jobs that we've identified. And unfortunately, adjusters, once they get this analysis, they like to gloss over this part of it, Sean. They will just simply say, oh, look, we've identified these two or three other jobs. We're going to plunk this into our pro forma decline letter, and we're going to tell you you're not entitled to further benefits after two years without really looking into the important nuances that a claim like Harry's gives rise to. This is why it's so effective what we do, John, day in and day out. Our team will use these elements, this glossing over, this faulty analysis, this sort of thing, to really put pressure on the insurance companies to come to the table and talk to us reasonably about what makes sense with a person like Harry. In the context of that, though, 
they will also talk to us about, okay, look, if you're saying to us tomorrow that this individual is never going to work again or never going to work again in a level that makes sense, functional enough to do something that's commensurate or an appropriate level of earnings, then, you know, they should be applying for CPP disability benefits. They should be doing this. They should be doing that. True. That's true insurance company. But the starting point is your acknowledgement that you shouldn't have cut off the claim in the first place. And so, yes, the policy doesn't require them to provide an individual like Harry with education, training and experience to do upgrading and this sort of thing. By the same token, it's not a solid analysis to simply say after three months, you're good to go. You're going to land yourself a, a whole new job in a whole new work setting with a compromised health profile. That's just not going to fly. And I can tell you in the context of our negotiations with insurance companies, oftentimes we get very little resistance from the insurance company to acknowledge that the claims like this should not have been cut off in the first place. Are there any uh, conditions which, you know, if diagnosed, of course, it's always your doctor, that will automatically lead to an approval of your disability benefits? Oh, automatically. I mean, nothing with insurance companies automatic, <laughs> John. It should be. I mean, I think that, you know, certainly if there's an obvious connection between, you know, your health limitations and your occupational duties, like, you know, what comes to mind is someone like a dental hygienist, for example, if they've sure. got a hand or a finger injury, you know, that's something that they is critical to the essential duties of what they do, then I think it's fairly automatic that they will be approved on a, on a basis like that. So that connection is very obvious. It's very well understood. Perhaps it's time limited. You know, I could see that being a fairly routine acceptance of the disability claim. But even then, I think the key that individuals need to understand when they're applying for disability benefits is that nothing is expected. You can't take anything for granted. You can't simply assume that just because you're being supported by your own medical team for total disability, that in fact, the insurance adjuster is actually going to accept it out of right, even if they do. So even if you submit your documents and let's say within a month you get approved, most approvals will be limited as well. It'll say, okay, we're going to approve you for like a month and we're going to continue to adjudicate. And that continued adjudication will in inevitably include at least one or two phone calls with you, very detailed questions around what you're doing day to day, very detailed questions about your treatment, what's the projection, so what's your prognosis, how long you're going to be off for and this kind of thing. And the adjuster will continue to calibrate how long payments are expected. You'll actually see that in a claims file, John. It'll say, our expectation is this person's going to return back to their own occupation right. by X date. Okay. And so even if it's a fairly routine or accepted out of the gates kind of disability claim, please don't assume that that's going to continue forever. You will be expecting further adjudication because bottom line, the adjuster's job is to identify opportunities to, to close out claims. That's how these insurance companies make their money, John. So they're not just going to sit back and be like, okay, it makes sense. You know, it's obvious and we're just going to keep paying the benefit. No. They're going to have ongoing adjudication no matter the circumstances, even if it's a fairly significant health issue like a cancer, for example, you know, things that you're like, OK, I understand, you know, this is pretty uh, you know, evident. You know, this individual is not going to be a, a, someone that's going to return back to work right away, even right. within a few months. Even then, I've seen aggressive adjusters take very aggressive approaches on disability claims and close out hastily if they can find a reason to do it. 
And with that, we are complete, and you can reach out now that we are done as well. Feel free to do so. one 855 my to ask more questions through your uh, keypad or uh, email, help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto.